Amen. Good morning. So glad to see you this morning. My name is Drew Klein. I'm one of the pastors here at South City, and we are honored that you are here with us today. This is our second Sunday in our Advent series. We're calling it the uh, Journey of Hope. Last Sunday, we talked about how the nation of Israel had waited and waited and waited. It had been centuries, 700 years, over 700 years of prophecy. And then we talked about the 400 years of silence from the Old Testament to the New Testament before the Lord would speak again. It's a long time to wait, and yet we identify with the nation of Israel because there's things in all of our lives that we wait for. And in this season, as we prepare for Christmas, we wait expectantly, whether, whether it be with our kids, whether it be um, just for a season of rest, whatever it is that you're waiting on, we identify back with that uh, nation of Israel and the fact that they had waited for so, so long. I want to tell you a story this morning of three kings. Can I do that? Three kings that are involved in the story of the Messiah, of his birth. Um, in fact, I want to read some, some comments made about one of the kings, and I want to see if you can tell me which king I'm talking about here, okay? Uh, this saying was said about this king. Here we go. Salvation is to be found in none other. Who does that sound like? Yeah, that's a good answer. What about this one? There is, none, there is no other name uh, in which salvation is found. Right. It, it sounds like Jesus, Right. But the truth is, it didn't originate with Jesus. Those phrases did not originate with Jesus. They originated with the first king I want to tell you about, or the family of kings. They're called the Caesars. Julius Caesar, and then his adopted son, Caesar Augustus. See, they wanted to be God. In fact, the people loved them so much, they sort of kind of made them into a little G, God. They worshiped them. Uh, they built temples to them. In fact, uh, on coins, Caesar Augustus had minted these phrases. And interesting, these very phrases, salvation is to be found in none other, save Augustus. There is no other name in which salvation is found, save Augustus. See, he wanted to be God. Actually, Julius, his adoptive father, called himself a god. And Augustus was a little smarter. I think he said, I, I'm not going to say I'm a God. Instead, I'm going to say I am the son of God. So he, the adoptive father, he, he's a God, I guess, a little G God. But I'm going to call myself just the son of God, but yet still to be worshipped. And I'll do the saving. So I don't want to get too far in our story, but I will tell you this. Over in Jerusalem, at the same time, these coins are going around. <laughs> there's a little rebellion going on. And the leader of that rebellion, his name was Peter. He's the one that uh, coined these phrases, at least in our minds, about Jesus. He did it standing in front of the Sanhedrin. He was, he was on trial. You might remember we did this study in the summer. He had healed a crippled man out in front of the temple. And when he gets uh, arrested and taken before the Sanhedrin, this is what he says. Let's look at it together in Acts Chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, he says, If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, 
whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Listen to that that last two phrases again. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So to us, that, you know, as Christians, we've grown up in the church, we've, we've heard this phrase preached and spoken so many times, we think that Peter came up with this phrase, but he didn't. In fact, it's kind of like saying, uh, in God we trust. We know that that phrase is minted on our money. We know that it's a common phrase, Right? In the same way, the people of the Sanhedrin, these Pharisees and Sadducees, these religious men, they would have known these phrases, and they would have known them to be about the Caesars. So what Peter does in this moment is very dangerous, very bold, and very clear. He says, salvation can be found in no other name except the name of Jesus among men, you notice he adds that, among men. He makes it real clear. The Caesars are not God, and Caesar Augustus is not the son of God. There's only one of those. His name is Jesus. The Caesars didn't heal a man, right? The Caesars didn't die and raise again. There is only one son of God, and his name is Jesus. I'm going to get too far ahead of myself. I want to go back to the first time that we're introduced to Caesar Augustus, and it happens to be in the Christmas story, Okay. Uh, Let's go back there. This is our first king I wanted to talk to you about, Caesar Augustus. Uh, Even the name Augustus is a very prideful and uh, exalted one. It's like saying I'm I'm the top. Augustus, it's it's the very best of the best. Ruler. Luke 2 verse 1 says this. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger." Because there was no place for them in the inn. I don't know about you, but when I hear that story, when I even just hear those words, it's almost hard for me to not read it in that little cartoon character voice of Charlie Brown. You know what I mean? We have heard this story so many times, it's just comfy, isn't it comfy? Even as we read it, it just feels so homey, comfy. Like I just, there ought to be a fireplace and I'd have a little book and, do you know what I'm talking about? It just feels comfortable. We've made it so comfortable and so beautiful. And in doing so, what we've done is we've taken out the reality of the story. This is not a comfortable place. This is not a comfortable time. This is an awful time. This is a dangerous time. When my wife and I finally got pregnant, we were so excited. We are ready to give birth to our first baby. I remember thinking, whoa, what hospital are we going to go to? We lived in Nashville. Tennessee, and we, there were several great options, and 
we lived down south in Franklin, and we thought, well, let's go, we'll, we'll go there. And we had seen the hospital and the birthing area, and we thought, okay, well, we'll go. We checked it out. We wanted to make sure it was safe and clean, and the people were nice, right? Mary had no option. She had no option. She, in fact, she didn't even have a home. She had to give birth in a stable, in a cave, filled with animal feces and hay and disgusting things that animals do. But that's not part of our story, is it? That's, that's too real. We want, the, we want the comfy, the light shown in the dark story. But don't miss the reality that Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, our Savior, the author and perfecter of our faith, the creator of the universe, was born in a mess. He came to a mess. I want you to notice a few things about this story. Luke, uh, Dr. Luke, he's always the historian. He's always the one that gives us details so we should know more about what's going on. And he gives us a detail of the time frame. He says it's when uh, Caesar Augustus had asked for this registration. So now we have some sort of a time frame then. It's also when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So we've got sort of two time stamps there to know when Jesus was born. Now we don't know the day. It probably wasn't December 25th, I'm sorry to tell you that. That's the day we've chosen to celebrate. In fact, we don't even know the year. We don't know the year. Most theologians think it was somewhere between 6 BC and 4 BC, but we don't know. But what Luke is doing is he's given us some timestamps to help us know at least the season. Now, I love that about Luke. He's also doing this, he's showing us that this is a political season, very highly politicized environment, right? Very much so. Crazy political environment, crazy people that are distrusted, that think they're gods. Uh, it doesn't sound like any culture or politicized environment you're familiar with, does it? We have a mess too. And it's good to know that Jesus is willing to come into our mess the Savior wasn't born in opulence. He wasn't born in a, in a palace or extravagance. Instead, I want us to see he was born in humility. He was born in humility. He was born in poverty. Of all the babies to be born, ever, right? Of all of them to ever be born, this one deserved the most celebrated and honored arrival, without a doubt. But instead, he's wrapped in swaddling clothes and he's laid in a, in a cow trough. When I think about this trough, I think about, <laughs> I don't know why I just play this out in my mind. I see baby Jesus laying there, you know, maybe the light hitting him in the face there and the swaddling clothes. And I just see a little calf or a goat coming up and sniffing him, maybe licking at him and then grabbing some of the hay from underneath him, backing out, you know. There's animals everywhere. It was a crazy setting. We have to be careful to not make it so comfortable that we miss the mess. Here's our first phrase from our card this morning that I want you to see. Christmas time should be a time of humble reflection of what matters most. A time of humble reflection of what matters most. Listen, we have gotten so lost in the comfort. When you think about Christmas, it means, I mean, a myriad of things to everybody, right? We got great food, we got great music, we got great decorations. We get caught up in kind of, you know, the decorations and the stuff 
and all the fluff and all the, the things that make us feel all sentimental. Oh, it's wonderful. It's great. And I don't want to, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But we can't get so wrapped up in all the fluff and all the stuff that we miss the truth of the story, right? We can't do that. It's a perfect time to humbly reflect through all the stuff about what matters most. What matters most in this season? Listen, you may not have fancy decorations at home. You might have a Charlie Brown tree at home. I know my grandmother, as she got older and older, she, she had this uh, bigger tree, and then it just got to be a pain, you know? So she went to the small tree on the little table, and she still decorated. She still took pride in the, in the decorations around the little tree. It didn't matter about the size of the tree. And it doesn't matter if you have a Charlie Brown tree with paper ornaments you've colored. If you have the worst Christmas setup at home ever known to man, it's better than what Jesus came into. You don't want those ornaments, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> have the kids color that. Listen, it's okay to decorate, it's okay to design. Let's not miss the truth of what matters most. Here's the second king. His name is Herod, and I, let me give you some context of this guy. He's nuts. Herod is crazy. As much cray-cray as Herod could possibly be, that's Herod. He's a murderer. He's jealous. He is paranoid like you would not believe. He kills at least one of his wives. He kills three of his sons. He kills 70 priests. He's a murderer. In fact, if a group of people begin together and, and uh, associate together in a group, he would think, he would be so paranoid, he would think it was about him. They're trying to scheme to kill me. And so he made it a law where you couldn't even uh, come together and congregate with many people in one congregation. He was so paranoid and so murderous. This was an evil, evil dude. And so with that information, Let's go read another part of our story out of Matthew chapter 2, can we? With that understanding of who Herod is. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Uh, for we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Remember, he's paranoid. So yeah, he's troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, which means the caravan of the wise men was big enough to draw attention to the whole city. He was, he was disturbed, right? It says, uh, all Jerusalem with him in verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And this is from Micah. He says, uh, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Then Herod, crazy Herod, summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I may come and worship too. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that had been seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, I love this, listen to this, 
when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I'm not sure what that means and what they did, but it sounds like a blast. That's all I know. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. In verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now think about crazy Herod. When he realizes the wise men have not come back to report, what does Herod want to do to the wise men? He wants to do what Herod does, right? He wants to, he wants to take them out. And thankfully, the Lord had warned the wise men, go another way home now. <laughs> well, Herod does what Herod does. Instead of killing the wise men, he chooses to kill every baby boy that was of two years old and younger. What an awful person. What a paranoid fool. So this is how we know that when the wise men came, Jesus might have been anywhere from nine months to two years old. Because Herod says he's the one that kind of has the best understanding of when he was born, according to when the star appeared. And so every boy, two years old and younger, is murdered. Well, the good news is that the Lord had warned Joseph. You know, sometimes Joseph gets a bad rap in the Christmas story, doesn't he? It's like he doesn't really do that much. He just kind of comes in. And he, listen, Joseph is the one who is in the line of David. That's Joseph. He's important. He's also important because he's listening to the Lord. Because it's here where the Lord says, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. So they go to Egypt and they bypass this murderous uh, scheming of Herod. And they stay in Egypt. And when Herod dies, the Lord says to Joseph again, it's still, he's still listening to the Lord. He says, come back, come back to Israel. And, and when he comes back to Israel, there's two things uh, of prophecy, fulfilling two prophecies. One is this. The Bible says in Hosea, uh, the father says, I will call my son out from Egypt. This is him fulfilling that prophecy. He comes back from Egypt into Israel. And then they choose to reside in a place called Nazareth, which is also fulfilling of a prophecy that says he will be called a Nazarene. And this is fulfillment of that prophecy. Joseph gets a bad rap, but he's listening to the Lord. Here's the, uh, here's the third king. I'm sure you can guess who he is. First we have Caesar Augustus. Then we have Herod. And then we have the king that the magi, the wise men, came to worship. The one true king. Who was that? Jesus. You see, Caesars and Herod, they didn't have a star over their home when they were born, did they? They didn't have it. They didn't have prophecies from hundreds of years leading up to their birth. They didn't have it. They didn't, they didn't have wise men traveling nine months from far east to come and worship and bring gifts at their birth. You know why? Because they weren't king of kings. There's only one true king, and his name is Jesus. The star proclaimed his birth. Uh, the prophecy of being born in Bethlehem is fulfilled as ruler over all Israel. The wise men watched and waited as the star forms and they follow it to Bethlehem. And I love in this story, look, I want to look at it again in verse 11. 
Look at what they do. Can we look at what they do? It says, in going into the house, they saw the child with, his Mary, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. It doesn't say they bowed down and worshiped him. Do you, do you notice that? It says they fell down and worshiped him. To me, what that says is, this wasn't a dignified, let me lift my priestly, high, kingly robes and bow. This was, this was an undignified, I have to get on my face before the God of the universe. I have to get on my face before the King of Kings. Why do I know that? Because of the gifts that he brought, the gifts that they brought. And just a little side note, when you buy gifts, and I know you're all in the scramble, I've seen you around the stores scrambling, going crazy. What a, anyway, I got caught in one yesterday. I'm still recovering from it. When you buy gifts, listen, this season, when you buy gifts, don't just buy a gift. Let it have some meaning. Let it have some meaning. That's what the wise men did. They brought, what did they bring, right? They brought gold, which is a gift that you give to a king. When you bring gold, you're bringing it and it's signifying this is a king, right? In fact, that's even what they said uh, to Herod. Where is this king born of the Jews? They knew he was king, so they brought him a kingly gift, gold. Then they bring him frankincense, right? Frankincense is incense. I heard somebody say recently they think it's incense made by some dude named Frank. I, don't, I can't verify the truth of that. I'm not sure that's true. Makes sense to me. But either way, what was incense used for, right? Incense was used as an offering, a scent offering for a God. That's what incense is used for. So these wise men are bringing gifts of meaning. They're saying, you're a king and you're a deity, you're God. And then the third gift, myrrh. Myrrh was, uh, it was something, it was an ointment they would put in cloth strips to wrap dead bodies. It was something they would wrap around dead bodies to preserve the body in, in death and burial. In fact, we see, very interestingly, in John 19, you can look at it later. In John 19, there's a story of Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus who met with Jesus in the middle of the night? Jesus told him he must be born again. Well, later in the story, Jesus is crucified and he's ready to be buried. And Nicodemus gets his body. And it says in John 19 that Nicodemus brings with him 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes and spices. You see, these gifts from the wise men, they had meaning. They're saying you're king and you're a god and you're the sacrifice for everyone. They're saying you're going to die. It was prophetic in nature. This gift was a pro prophetic gift. And so we see it played out in John 19. First thing we see the uh, wise men do, though, <laughs> verse 11, before they give their gifts, we see them worship. We see them worship. And I, here's the second phrase for your card this morning. I think we ought to take the example of the Magi. This season and every Christmas season, we ought to take their example, and we too should worship the one true king. You know, there's nothing in our story about the Magi bowing before Herod. Did you notice that? It's not in the story that they fell before Herod. No, no. 
they fell before Jesus. It's because he was the one true king. Before they give their gifts, they worship. Seasons, uh, Christmas is a season of worship. I want to give you some examples from scripture. All right. We see it even with Mary. Right. Look at the story of Mary. She's now pregnant with Messiah. And she goes into this beautiful, worshipful prayer. Lord, how could you choose me? Praise God. She worships and says, thank you that you would allow me to be this child's mother. And for me to be in this story, she worships. And then a little bit later, she shares her story with Elizabeth, remember? And then Elizabeth begins to worship the Lord. And this is amazing. Listen, the baby in Elizabeth's womb jumps. That's John the Baptist. He worships in utero. It's a big deal. Then we see the angels and the shepherds and the choir sing in, uh, angels in the heavens. Then they take the child to the, to the um, tabernacle, right? And we see Simeon and we see Anna begin to worship. And then we see the wise men. They come and they fall. And then they bring their gifts. Worship is the most important thing you could do any Christmas. Any Christmas at any time, worship is the thing we should do. It should be a season of worship. But is that the first thing that comes to our minds when we think about Christmas? It's not. But it should be. It should be. Here's the next phrase for your card. We should try and not lose the wonder of the mystery. If you've ever seen that movie, uh, Polar Express, you know, there's a lot of great Christmas movies out there, and this is one of the classics, honestly, in my opinion. Well, in the movie, there's this little boy, and he didn't believe in Santa. Sorry, John. He, he, didn't, uh, he didn't completely believe in the story of Santa. And so the way that it was represented in the movie is there was this little bell, and he would shake the bell, and if, if you could hear the bell ring, that meant that he believed. But for anybody who would see the bell and go, huh, and shake it, if they didn't hear it, it meant that they had lost belief. Listen, as Christians, we don't have a bell. But many of us have lost the wonder of Christmas. I, you know, in many ways, I'm sort of a mystic. And I, I know that's a weighted term. And, and some of you go, oh, what does that mean? It's okay, calm down. It just means that I don't know all the things that God knows. He is a supernatural, unbelievable God. And so I enter into this mystery that I don't know at all. And he's amazing. Here's the the line. Here's the phrase for your card. We should not lose the wonder of the mystery. There's, there's, There's some examples in scripture of people who have been wrapped up in the mystery of wonder. Mary is one of them. After she's uh, is impregnated with the baby Jesus, Luke two nineteen says, "Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart." I love the way that that, that reads. She treasured all these things, and she pondered them in her heart. She she was lost in wonder. And as you read her prayer back to the Lord, you know it's really clear that she's saying, oh God, how could you pick me? 
How could I be the one that you would choose to use? I'm unworthy, but may it be to your servant as you have said. She's lost in wonder and mystery. I love after they go to the temple and Simeon holds the Messiah and he's ready to die now, right? He's holding the baby. And then right after that story, after he has said, I've seen salvation with my own eyes. Now I can die. I've seen salvation for the Jews and for the Gentiles. This is what it says, Luke 2.33. It says, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. They were lost in the wonder of the mystery. Who is this baby? God, how could we be the parents of this baby? Listen, if you get to the place at Christmas where you can't come back to the wonder that Jesus loves you so much that he would be born in a mess so that he could grow up and die for your mess, then you've lost the mystery and the wonder. God is telling this beautiful story to his creation. The word of God says, before the foundations of the world were laid, he had a plan for our redemption. And it starts with a baby in a manger. Don't lose the mystery of the wonder. Do you think about deeper meanings of Christmas? Don't get caught up in all the junk. Cut through the junk, can you? And think about what it means for God to be with us. God with us. Here's the last phrase on a card. It's better to give than receive. We've all heard that phrase, right? It's better to give than receive. Listen, when I was a kid, I remember hearing this, and I remember thinking, whoever said that did not know at all what they were talking about. Especially at Christmas, I can remember going, this is just not true. I mean, I'm a kid, I get this. I actually really very much more love receiving things than giving them. I give things and I receive things, and it's much better to get than give. And then I grew up, and I couldn't care less about getting things anymore. Honestly, there's nothing, right now I'm telling you honestly, there's nothing in my heart and my mind right now that I'm I'm hoping for. Nothing. I have everything I need. I'm blessed. But I love to give. I love to give to friends. I love to give to my children. I love to get wrapped up in the mystery and wonder of Christmas. We love to Talk to our kids about what they want. How in the world is Santa going to get that in the house? I have no idea. This is crazy time, right? Just caught up in the wonder and the joy of the season. We know that Jesus is the one who said this. It's better to give than receive. Paul tells us in Acts 20. He's right. Listen, I thought it'd be helpful to give you some guidelines as you finish up your shopping. So on the back of your card, there's three little guidelines for you as you shop. This is what they are. This year as you shop for presents and you get people stuff, let's do this. Let's focus on people more than things. Focus on people more than things. There's a story of a college student who, (laughs) he bought his dad a gift for Christmas. His father opened up the gift and it was a bag of really expensive, really great coffee beans. And his dad loves coffee. His dad was like, son, thanks so much, man. I'm gonna love these. He goes, no, 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 dad, read read on the thing. And so his dad looks at the, at the bag of coffee beans again, looks closer, and it says, it says, Dad, every time you grind these beans, 
And every time you take, take a sip of this coffee, I want to be with you. In fact, don't grind these beans or drink this coffee without me. I want to sit across from you, and I want to look into your eyes, and as we drink this together and we enjoy this together, I want you to tell me of how God has created in you the man of God that you are. Do, do you see the difference in giving somebody a gift and then giving somebody a relationship? Because when we're dying on our deathbed, the gifts won't matter. The relationships will. Let's focus more on people than stuff. You might even have gifts right now for people that you've already purchased, you're ready. Maybe you can write on those gifts. Maybe you can go back and write in some relational aspects to those. Hey, when you use this, I'd love to come over and spend 30 minutes with you. I'd love to take you to, to lunch and spend some time with you. Let's focus on people more than stuff. You see how the kid just took it up a notch? It wasn't about the gift, it was about the relationship. Let's let gifts be secondary to what people mean in our lives. Here's the second thing. Spend more time than money. The greatest commodity we have is time. And when we spend it on people, that means a whole lot. That means a whole lot. Spend more time than just money on people. And here's the last thing. Don't forget to give to those who will never be able to give back to you. We got a whole community of them. People who don't have what you have, let's not forget them. And listen, they'll never give it back. Go into it knowing that. We're gonna give, we're gonna serve, we're gonna love, and we'll never see it again. Praise God that he has blessed us to be a blessing. Last week we talked about waiting and I, I shared with you about my wife and I's struggle with infertility and, and our two wonderful girls and how God had uh, answered our prayers and how long we waited and just the struggle. And we love, like I said, we love to give them gifts. We love to hear about what they're wanting and getting excited. It took us 12 years to get them here so when they came, I kind of want to give them the world, you know, and that's the problem. I want to give them the world. So I'm learning to not do that. It was probably a couple years ago. I was sitting in bed with uh, my youngest, Jovi. We were talking about Christmas and talking about stuff and praying. And I don't know why my attention just kind of went around, scanned around her room, and I just started noticing these piles of toys. Now, I'm not talking about like a couple of toys over here. I mean piles of stuffed animals, piles of, you know, plastic stuff. And then I'm hearing Jovi say she wants more of that stuff. I'm like, oh, I just felt so defeated in my heart. Like, can't Christmas be about something more than stuff that's going to end up in that pile and in two years it's going to be at Goodwill? And I, so I wish I could sit here and tell you the four points that Lori and I came up with to be the amazing parents that we are. Here's the deal. We haven't come up with them. We're still struggling with them. We're still struggling through the reality of we want to give them what they want, but we want to teach them what matters most. And in that struggle somewhere, we're trying to find a balance of how to disciple them to Jesus, how to love people more than they love themselves. But it, I'm just telling you, it's, I'm confessing this morning, we don't have it figured out. We still make mistakes. 
We have a video this morning that I want to show you. And then after that video is done, I'm going to come back and wrap us up. But my prayer is that this year we begin to think about what it means to cut through the stuff. Cut through the stuff and focus on what matters most. Let's watch this. For many of us, Christmas is a time of year that holds some of our dearest memories. We're introduced as kids to this season that brings our loved ones together and is filled with celebration. We sang songs, set up nativities, decorated houses. We learned Christmas is actually a real story with shepherds, wise men, Joseph and Mary. The story of when God, the Father, gave his son. But now that I have children of my own, it feels like the story of Christmas is simply a story about more. More toys. More things. And even though I'm the parent, I gotta admit that in all the busyness, I buy into it too. I've traded away the best story in the world for what's on sale. What if God had something better than this for all of us? I want to show my kids the real story of Christmas this Advent season. And honestly, I don't know what this will mean for our family. I hope it changes the way we spend money, who we bless, the type of gifts we give, and just how we talk and think about Jesus. The story of Christmas isn't told with free two-day shipping or Black Friday deals. The story of Christmas changed the world. So, shouldn't it change us? I wish I could tell you we got it figured out. We don't necessarily have it figured out. We're struggling through it. But there's, a, there's an unrest in me. There's a dissatisfaction in my soul to not just buy in to what the world says is Christmas, to not just buy in to this national, comfy, gift-crazed season of Christmas. See, it's it's okay to give gifts. And it's okay to give gifts full of stuff and plastic that might end up on the floor and might end up at Goodwill. It's okay. But we gotta make the main thing the main thing. We gotta cut through the stuff. And at some point in our families, this Christmas and every Christmas, my prayer for you is that you'd end up on your knees, holding hands with your kids and saying, hey, by the way, this has been an amazing time together, but What matters most is Jesus. What matters most is that he came in the middle of a mess and he's willing to come in the middle of our mess. The mess of our families, the mess of our sin, the mess of our addictions, the mess of our struggles, the mess of our broken lives. He's willing to come right in the middle, the mess of our country and be a savior that'll 
turn this world and turn our world upside down. Instead of just falling into place, because I see, I see what's happening with Christmas as almost a national religion. The Latin word for it is religio. religio. That's what Caesar had set up, a religio, sort of a national cult, a national religion that he would be worshiped. And we too have fallen into worshiping a national religion of stuff and more and fluff. And like Peter, may we rebel from what the world says is Christmas and from what television says is how we should celebrate. May we pull back and say, no, no, no. What if we spend less and give more? Is that possible? It's not easy. I do believe it's possible. Challenge us this morning to humbly reflect on what matters most this Christmas, to worship and wonder in the beauty of this story. And when we give, let's do so with depth and meaning. I want to read this scripture to you before we close. First John 2, 15. I'm going to read it out of the message. It says this, don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. The world and all it's wanting, 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 is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. <laughs> My prayer is that as a church and as families that make up our church, we truly would learn to, to know what it means to be content. That's the prayer for my family. To be content in what God has given us, not driven by comparison, because at its core, comparison is a sin of pride. But instead, searching the season for a deeper understanding of this story of Christmas and a Savior a more robust experience of sacrificial giving and sacrificial love and to truly begin to worship the one true king. What are some ways you could do that this year? I hope that right now in your heart, you're beginning to think of some creative ways to make this season more meaningful. Just tell you this, I learned this fact from uh, that website, adventconspiracy.com. This year we'll spend 360 billion with a B at Christmas, $360 billion at Christmas. Do you know how much money it would take to provide the entire planet with clean water? Do you know how much it would take? 30 billion. People die every day from a lack of clean water and we'll spend 360 billion at Christmas. It would only take 30 to provide clean water around the world. Is it possible to spend less and give more? Just as we close, I just encourage you, listen, there, there are great missions organizations. In fact, I'm going to try and send you an email tomorrow with a multiple uh, places you can give and, 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 and sow into, okay? But you might want to give to, to places that can actually do water wells around the world. You might want to give to our benevolence fund because there are some families. I'm working with Coach Clark right now. There's some families at LSY and even in our own church 
that need help this Christmas with shoes and clothes and things that matter. You might wanna help us with those families. You might even wanna just give to the ministries of your church because I'll just be honest with you, we're behind. But this is God's church, so we're not afraid. This is his mission, so we trust in him. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. We will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, you're so good. And we are so blessed. You've given us so very much. God, would you give us the courage to not just buy into the religio of our country, this religion of more and stuff and fluff and comfort instead of the truth of who you are and what you came into and what you have done and what you're doing in us. Savior, Son of God, help us to focus, help us to go deeper in our walk and relationship with who you are and what this season can mean so that we can raise kids of depth. We can raise disciples of Jesus and not consumers of the things of the world. Oh God, would you help us? Give us wisdom and give us courage to rebel against this world's systems and follow your way. Lord, we love you. We give you our lives. We hope and trust in you now. Do a work in our church. Thank you for your provision. It's in Jesus' precious and wonderful name that we pray. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Will you stand and let's worship?